morning from the sleepy studios of Talk Radio 1680 KGED. I am Jonathan Keller, CEO and President of California Family Council. Happy to be with you today on another episode of Life, Family, Liberty. It's it's a Monday, John. Yes, it is. John Girardi here from Right to Life of Central California. So how did you get to be CEO and President? I think that was just the job application when I applied for the job. I think it's. Oh, okay. I don't know. It was it was what was on the business card template. Oh, so okay. <laughs> I was going to say, how does being and president uh, is is that more money or what? what uh, that? Yeah, that would be that would be great. <laughs> you get you get double the salaries. No, there that's that's not really true, folks. You can go check our nine nineties if you want to do that. So, yeah. that's, <clears throat> but we, I think John has something to do with the role I have as a member of the board and the chairman and the this and that and yeah but um we you don't you didn't tune into the show today to listen to the corporate governance structure of California Family Council No 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 uh you tuned in because you care about current events and news and um John there is still a slow moving scandal that is going on in the state of Virginia and as I said to someone yeah. a couple of uh, days ago I said the only person the, the the only politician who is breathing a sigh of relief in Virginia is Democrat Kathy Tran, who introduced that horrible abortion bill. Yeah, because it kind of took the focus off her. Although, I don't know, by the end of this show, like, I mean, I drove through Virginia one time, uh, so I might wind up being the governor of Virginia by That's the time right. the show is over. The line of succession, you never yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, it is It is pretty funny, folks. The If you're not following this... And it's, the, the, the non-funny part about it is that the governor of Virginia did all these horrible things. The lieutenant governor is being accused of even, I'd say, even more horrible things. Multiple rape allegations uh, by multiple women. The attorney general of Virginia apparently also dressed in blackface. Um, and none of them are resigning. So that's fantastic. Um, John, I, I don't know if you remember, there's a uh, there's a great scene that I remember seeing. It's, it's, it's from our favorite TV show, The Office. Uh, I don't even remember the exact context, but it's some it's some joke where uh, Michael Scott and Dwight Schrute and I think um, Andy are all Andy Bernard are all sitting there and they are having some sort of a standoff and they both have their hands held up as finger guns. Mm -hmm. You know, the gift that I'm thinking of. They're all pointed at each other. And it's supposed to look like an old West shootout. Uh, Mexican standoff, as it's called. Yes. And that is all that I can think of whenever I hear about Virginia. I think of that scene from The Office because literally nobody is going to resign first. No. Uh, There is no incentive to resign first. And it appears, I mean, really, it seems, I guess I don't know what the rules are about if the lieutenant governor resigns first, can the governor appoint a new lieutenant governor theoretically and then, then yes. he can resign and then that lieutenant governor but it seems like no one wants to, everyone is like nope we're just gonna hold on to our power and just not do that so yes we're gonna continue to have a state governed by three losers and i think the the tricky thing john is that as you said if, if the governor resigns then the lieutenant governor who's very scandal plagued goes forward the attorney general the the the, the difficult thing is that the attorney general if he Leaves. I think that position requires confirmation by the state legislature, which is controlled by the Republicans. Right. And so the line of succession succession goes governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, and then the majority leader in their House of Representatives equivalent, their, their lower house in their legislature. 
who is a Republican. So there's no way that they're going to let a Republican become the governor of Virginia because, of course, that would be the worst possible outcome in, in these people's minds. So we're just kind of sitting around with a racist governor sort of, or, a, or at least a or at least a governor who was racist well into his 20s and deep into his uh, educational deep into his education and who seems like he's uh kind of completely off his rocker especially after a press conference in which he almost moonwalked um and only didn't because his uh because his wife sort of told him, no, this is not appropriate right now. So let me read, John. I, I meant to share this. This I think this came out after our last show. Um, or it came out, yeah, it came out uh, on Monday afternoon. But this is the best article on this issue that I've read. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry. I'm, I'm fighting a little bit of a cold myself. But this is from uh, Jonathan V. Last at the website The Bulwark. And <clears throat> he he brings up a really tragic point for, I think, what the current state of partisan politics has devolved to in the U.S., but specifically in Virginia. He says, the awful game theory behind Ralph Northam. And if you don't know, game theory is just kind of the idea of, you know, well, if I do this, then this would happen, but that if this happens and that happens, it's basically just looking at what future events might precipitate each other. Okay, he said, let's stipulate that Governor Ralph Northam is a bad person, or at least a person who, as an adult, did something really stupid and hurtful by dressing in blackface and or Klan garb. Let's also stipulate that plenty of Democrats want him to step down for totally valid reasons. The real question is, according to, according to his own interests, should Northam stay on as governor? And the answer is yes, 100%. Keep in mind, by the way, I need to just editorial note, Jonathan V. Last is a conservative. He's, he's a very conservative writer, used to write for the Weekly Standard, uh, Catholic guy. I think he has three or four kids. So he is not... What a, a piker. I know. <laughs> he yeah, is, kidding. <laughs> he is not a Ralph Northam fan, but he says the answer is yes, 100%. Keep in mind that when we say should, we are not talking about morality or cosmic justice. By any normal standards of behavior, of course, now Northam should resign. But America's politics no longer hew to any real standards of behavior. And politicians have yearned that when facing an existential crisis, brazening it out gives them at least a 50 50 chance of survival. Think about Northam's incentive structure here. If he were to resign in disgrace, his political career would be over, full stop. He's well-to-do, he's a pediatric neurologist, but he doesn't have any fee family money. He's currently on leave from the medical practice he founded. Do you think that practice would be able to reabsorb him? Do you think hospitals will want to go to the trouble associated with giving him privileges? Me neither. So if Northam were to leave voluntarily, he's screwed. The only thing he'd get in return would be the serenity of having done the right thing. For normal people, that might count for a lot. For people who think black fan and the clan, black blackface and, and the clan jokes and infanticide are okay, maybe not so much. On the other hand, if Northam looks at recent history, he'll see a whole bunch of guys who, when faced with sure political death, outlasted the storm. The obvious example is Bill Clinton, who committed perjury in either inappropriate workplace behavior or sexual assault, depending on how you look at the world. That's probably worse than Northam's infraction. A better analogy might be Donald Trump, who got on tape merely bragging about sexual assault. Plenty of people wanted him to drop out of the race. He stuck it out, and by his own lights, was right to do so. Trent Lott is an almost perfect analog. He stuck out his own racist problems, won re-election, and then went on to a successful lobbying career. Remember Roy Moore? Everyone, everyone wanted him to go away, but he came within 22,000 votes of becoming a U.S. senator. Todd Aiken didn't get as close as Missouri, but at least he had a chance of going all the way to the election day. If he had thrown in the towel when he was embarrassing the Republican Party, he wouldn't have even gotten that much. The lesson in each of these cases <clears throat> for the disgraced politician is to hang tough and double down on your base. Clinton vetoed very popular partial birth abortion bills twice in the run-up to impeachment. 
Trump kept reminding Republicans that he was the last defense against the liberal Supreme Court. More supporters constructed cockamamie arguments about how voting against him was a vote for abortion. Ditto Todd Akin. So if Northam refuses to leave and then goes full infanticide, there's at least a chance that some portions of the left will come around on him out of purely negative negative partisanship. After all, they have a history of going out of their way to alibi people who did and said much worse things but were good on reproductive rights. Northam just has to go as so far to stop Republicans attacking him for the blackface and start attacking him for radical policy positions. That won't be hard. I'll finish this article when we come back, but, John, I fear that this is probably correct. Yeah. I mean, Democrats like abortion to be legal more than they like dislike racism. Yep. And we'll be back and finish the article on today's episode of Life, Family, Liberty. I left California because I thought I was going to be able to get away from crazy politics. Well, then he moved to Virginia. Then he moved to Virginia. (laughs) And he said, yeah, I I thought that, you know, look, we are going to have a crazy governor and we're going to have crazy legislature and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, John, I I, I do have to say, I I have a lot of disagreements with Gavin Newsom, but at least as far as we know, he's never worn blackface. And at least as far as we know, at least currently, he's not been accused of rape by multiple women. Yeah, all he's done is... uh, you know, sleep with his best friend's wife, or, or yeah, was it was that it? was that what he what he did? I, I, I know there that, was some adultery involved. Yeah, there was. Yeah. He's a he's not a uh, really a nice great guy. peach, but yeah, <laughs> real real peach, That's real right. a real sweetheart that Gavin Newsom. So let's let's get back, and this is I think part of the problem, John, is that you get some politicians like Gavin Newsom that are so far left that they become almost untouchable. Um, and I think that's the fear that we have about Ralph Northam. Uh, this, concluding the article from Jonathan Last, he says, so if Northam refuses to leave and then goes full infanticide, which he already kind of did. And ironically, that's the whole thing that started this to begin with. Um, but if he, if he continues to push even more aggressively, if Northam refuses to leave and then goes full infanticide, there's at least a chance that some portions of the left will come around him out around of purely or around on him. You're right. Purely out of negative partisanship. After all, they have a long history of going out of their way to alibi people who said and did much worse things, but were good on reproductive rights. Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. Ted Kennedy. <laughs> I mean, Ted Kennedy literally killed a girl. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, he wrote, voted the hey, right way. All right. Jesse Jackson. I mean, there's all sorts of people who. Rever- Reverend Jesse Jackson. Yep. Yep. They were good on reproductive rights. Northam just has to go so far that Republicans stop attacking him for the blackface and start attacking him for taking radical policy positions. This won't be hard. It's not a foolproof strategy. Larry Craig stuck it out but then retired because re-election was impossible. But when disgraced politicians allow themselves to get muscled aside by the party establishment, think Jack Ryan and Al Franken and Eric Greitens, they get nothing. And what is the Democratic Party going to do to Northam? He can't run for re-election. They can't remove him from office. And if he goes hard enough to the left, they'll have to support him against the evil Republicans. You know, it's a binary choice and all that. It's important to say none of this is good. In a perfect world, bad people like Northam and Trump and Clinton and more would go away after being publicly shamed. Even Richard Nixon, God bless him, had the decency to do that. But we don't live in that world anymore. Instead, the ideological sorting of parties has weaponized partisanship. And just as a side note, a quick pause, John. Um, It is interesting that if you look back even, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, but especially 20 to 30 years ago, there were a lot more moderate to liberal Republicans and a lot more moderate to conservative Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially in the South, there was still a lot of 
Democrats still in the South who were much more moderate to conservative, and the Republican Party was much more plagued with rhinos all over the place. Um, but yeah, the, the both sides have sort of ideologically hardened, which to a certain sense is good on the Republican side because they're not compromising quite as much on these important issues relating to life. Um, but it's kind of troubling simultaneously on the Democrat side because there's essentially no room for a pro-lifer on that side, even if you want you know a vaguely pro-life person to run uh, as a Democrat for the mayor of Omaha. Yep. Uh, the Democratic Party raised a huge stink about this pro-life guy who was trying to run for mayor of Omaha uh, because he was pro-life. Um, so it, it's kind of troubling on, on both sides of the spectrum. So he goes on and says, we or don't... On that side of the spectrum. Uh, so Jonathan last concludes. He says, we don't live in that world anymore. Instead, ideological sorting of the parties has weaponized partisanship. When all of the conservatives are Republicans and all of the liberals are Democrats, then partisanship manifests itself as pure pursuit of power, uber allies. This warps incentive structures so that the parties find themselves tolerating bad actors. It's the bad actors then notice this and then they realize their best chance of survival is sticking out a crisis and becoming politically radical in order to harness the power of neg negative partisanship. In other words, negative partisanship, well, <clears throat> I don't like you, politician, you know, Joe Q public, but at least you're not the other party. Right. And this, he makes actually a great point, John. He says, parentheses, Harvey Weinstein tried doing this at the end only to find out that the dynamics don't work in Hollywood because it's a monoculture. Right. So if you remember, what does he mean with Harvey Weinstein? Well, Harvey Weinstein was a Democrat, and when he was accused of all of these horrible things, he basically issued this really bizarre press release and said, well, you know, I, yes, I have made some mistakes in my life, but I've realized that the real problem is the culture of violence with the National Rifle Association. Yeah. And <laughs> he did this crazy thing. Well, I'm going to go, I'm going to spend my time in the wilderness uh, attacking the NRA and making sure that we get their horrible money out of politics. And and everyone was like, nah, that's not going to do it. Like, yeah. like, there are plenty of other producers in Hollywood who are also fighting the NRA right now. Yes. So this is not a like a unique contribution yes. that you're making. So and, and they, just go away. And they said, to a certain degree, John, I, I, because a lot of, frankly, a lot of leftism, uh, since it rejects an explicit sort of uh, religion in terms of in, in favor of multiculturalism, um, I think in a lot of times becoming excessively partisan is viewed as a way to sort of absolve yourself to you know to, to get absolution for your sins. You know, yeah. you go and you you supplicate at the church of Planned Parenthood, and they will give you you know you know all right you know you just say three infanticides and you know <laughs> yeah exactly ten partial birth abortions <laughs> and you you shall be cleansed. Um, <laughs> So that's pretty much how it works. And then Jonathan, the last, last paragraph says, um, I mention all this not because I want Ralph Northam to continue on as governor, but merely to note that Northam's persistence is just one more example that our political culture is so screwed up that unless we start making some truly foundational changes, maybe starting with killing all gerrymandering everywhere, we're doomed. Smod 2020, the sweet meteor of death 2020. Here we come. Well, I don't know about eliminating gerrymandering, which has a long and storied tradition in American politics that I appreciate. But yes, um, he makes a lot of good points there. Now, now, here's the one thing I will say: Yeah, I will, I will, I will back up with you on uh, on the gerrymandering. Uh, I'd like Jonathan last. I think the whole article is really good overall. Um, gerrymandering, just as a, as a side note, it doesn't really apply to like a statewide office in Virginia, like governor. Yeah, um, doesn't uh, doesn't quite work. But yeah. but generally speaking, John, I, I think this is a huge. This is a huge problem. You have, um, 
you have Ralph Northam essentially believing now that, okay, I am, I am trapped. And if I leave office, I'm not going to be able to be hired anywhere. So my, my best option is to stick my finger in the eyes of voters and say, I know you want me to resign, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to wait till this thing blows over. I'm going to do as many ultra left-wing crazy liberal things as I can to ingratiate myself with enough people so that after my one term as governor is done, I can still have a job. And that's it's it's a it's a winning strategy. Don't and, ever admit that you did anything wrong. Just and, just write it out. And this is something, John, that the thing that is that is frustrating to me is that I, I think there were a lot of conservatives. Um, they they even went they, they had a name, like a hashtag campaign in the in the twenty sixteen campaign, like never never something, never never Trump, I guess they yes. were. Yes. Many conservatives had deep concerns about President Trump in 2016. And many of those conservatives went and said, look, we we believe that there could be a better candidate on these different issues of morality. But John, what is the point of, if you're a conservative, what's the point of standing up for principle if it amounts to unilateral disarmament and the Democrats are not going to do the same thing? Exactly. Yeah. And that's, I think, why so many Republicans and conservatives voted for President Trump in 2016 because they said, look... At least he goes out and he fights for something, and at least he's not going to back down even when the media attacks him. And I I think, obviously, there's a little bit of a difference between some of the things that President Trump was accused of. And he, to his credit in a lot of cases, said, no, I didn't do that, or no, that didn't happen, or no, that wasn't what it was. Well, it's also this thing of conservatives are fighting a game where the deck is kind of stacked against you. Like, yes. Hillary Clinton can do, you know, there's a litany of scandals that the Clintons have been involved in going back. 30 years and that Hillary was intimately involved in but the media is never going to highlight those things to the extent that they need to be highlighted so given that the Democrats are playing this game of sticking to their guns the media is never going to call them out on it there's a certain wisdom I, I guess to the Republic to the Trumpian notion that no don't admit defeat don't 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 you know take the high road like just just keep on fighting keep on fighting trump is a vehicle for accomplishing certain goods yep so and so when we come back we're going to shift from talking about all this crazy virginia the supreme court big decision or non-decision as it was from the supreme court when we come back on today's episode of life family liberty I'm your host, Jonathan Keller. Thanks for being with us today on this 11th, I believe. I'm pretty sure it's the 11th of, yeah, the 11th. It's Monday, the 11th of February. It's Valentine's Day this week, John. Yes, indeed. So everybody, all those, that, that, that immediate jerk on the steering wheel that you saw as a panicked husband driving in front of you realizing, oh my gosh, it's Valentine's Day on Thursday. I better do something. Yes, indeed. So... Um, John, this is the uh, second year that we have had Hudson, but it's the first year that I think we are not so like tired and exhausted that we're actually thinking about, oh yeah, I guess maybe we could slash should do something for Valentine's Day, but now we have a baby that is big enough that he needs to be watched by somebody. We can't just like quietly take him with us somewhere. So right. uh, we will try to figure that out. I'm not sure what we're going to do, mm-hmm. but okay. Well, so we'll see. All right. Uh, switching topics. We talked a lot about Virginia. John, I want to talk a little bit about this Supreme Court decision slash non-decision from last week. I, I mean, I guess 
technically, I mean, it is a decision, but can you explain it? There, there was yeah. a lot. We read, I think, on air a couple of weeks ago, the the panicked musings of Ian Milheiser from uh, right. Think Progress about, oh, my gosh, the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe v. Wade this week. Mm-hmm. And that did not happen. Yeah. So basically, here's what's happening. Louisiana passed a law that puts a bunch of health and safety restrictions on abortion clinics and abortion providers. Uh, This law is similar to a law the Supreme Court struck down in 2016 uh, from Texas. This was a case called Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt. And uh, basically, that Supreme Court decision limits the kinds of health and safety restrictions that states can impose on abortion clinics. A lot has changed on the Supreme Court since 2016. There are a lot of different justices on the court now, and when the Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt was issued, uh, it was shortly after Antonin Scalia had died, so there were really, like, five liberal, there, there were four liberals, Anthony Kennedy, and then only three conservatives. Uh, this case is very similar and seems like a likely vehicle to overturn Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt and give states broad latitude to issue health and safety regulations on abortion clinics. Uh, the state of Louisiana passed this law, therefore, trying to directly challenge Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld this law. It, the law immediately got challenged by Planned Parenthood and other entities. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is one of the federal circuit courts that are one click below the Supreme Court, uh, upheld this law as constitutional. And this was this is now being kicked up to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court was deciding whether is still deciding whether or not to take this case, but the Supreme Court was first called upon to decide whether or not to issue a stay to prevent this law from taking effect, okay? And it's kind of a procedural question. There are procedural rules that govern whether or not the Supreme Court should grant a stay. Um, Justice Roberts ruled with the liberal justices on the court to grant a stay, to prevent this law from coming into effect. Now, um, there's... This is another example of either Kavanaugh or Roberts, and we, we saw this happen uh, just a few weeks ago with uh, the court's decision not to take a law out of um, not to ta- not to take a case that dealt with whether or not states could uh, de- could decline to use Planned Parenthood as a Medicaid healthcare provider. Um, the court decided not to hear a case to decide that issue. Uh, this is another example where either Roberts or Kavanaugh issue a ruling that is only based on procedural stuff. It's not based on the substance of what they think, whether they think the Constitution protects the right to have abortion or not. It's all procedural stuff, but it seems to be procedural stuff that always goes against us, goes uh, not in our favor. So, um, so that's not great. Uh, however. I don't think it's the end of the world. There are a lot of conservatives crowing about this that, oh, geez, John Roberts is going full liberal. This is terrible, blah, 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 blah. Uh, basically, Roberts ruled with the liberals to give a stay so this this law uh, does not go into effect in Louisiana. But it is highly likely, I think, that the Supreme Court will decide to hear this case. So uh, there are one or two options. Either the Supreme Court declines to hear the case in which case this stay goes away and the law just goes into effect, Woo-hoo. which would be great. Or the Supreme Court decides to hear the case, and if the Supreme Court decides to hear the case, I think it's highly likely they're 
going to issue a really great ruling overturning Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt. Um, John Roberts dissented in Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt. He's unlikely to uphold it uh, just a few years later. Um, this is not a well-established precedent. It's only three years old. Uh, the Supreme Court has changed drastically in that time. So I, I think um, – so it, this is not great in the short term, but I think in the long term this could wind up being an advance for us because it it's sort of setting up that the Supreme Court is likely one way or another to strike down this law, either by declining to take the case or by taking the case and overturning the bad prior precedent of Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt. So the sky is not falling if you're a pro-lifer, John? I mean, it's not great. Like, there, I wish, uh, I wish a different outcome had been achieved, and I'm getting a little nervous by all of these victories on procedure that uh, pro-choice legal advocates seem to be winning under the Roberts-slash-Kavanaugh court. But, you know, I don't think it's the end of the world. So I th- I think John I remain with you cautiously optimistic slash um, nervously frightened yeah <laughs> depending on the day and the case because uh, a- as you said I think that um, we've talked about this a lot I know we didn't talk about it on the radio yet today but over the past few weeks whether it was at that special forum that we did the other day or whatever else. There was very strong reason for conservatives to believe in 1992 that Roe v. Wade was finally on its, you know, on its near its near its 19th birthday. It was on its, uh, you know, uh, about to be overturned. Yes, it was on the way out. And everyone really thought, okay, you know, it's been around for 20 years, but now we've got ultrasound. We've got all these new things and the change of public opinion and this and and that and the other. And eight of the nine justices on the Supreme Court were appointed by Republicans and Kent and Reagan and Bush had just nominated all these great new faces, these guys like Anthony Kennedy and Sandra Day O'Connor and David Souter and Antonin Scalia and yeah. Clarence Thomas, all these great people who are going to overturn Roe v. Wade, and then more than half of them turned out to be total duds who stabbed yes. us in the back. Now, I I don't want to say that John Roberts is a uh, – I don't think he's a David Souter by any means. No, I don't even think he's an Anthony Kennedy, frankly. I, I think John Roberts gets a lot of guff that is uh, understandably applied to him, but I don't think always fairly. I think his decision on the Obamacare case really hurt his standing in the eyes of a lot of conservatives. But it's this thing where he, I think he's, he's very big on, uh, what's the, he, he's very big on principle, he's very, but he's, he's more, he, he's very big, not on substance, but on procedure. He's very big on procedure. And I think he's he cares very much about the Supreme Court not being viewed as activist. Yes. And so much so that he winds up doing things that I don't think are the right outcome. Uh, like he's so concerned that the Supreme Court is activist that he's willing to like completely reread the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act to turn it into from a penalty that was clearly unconstitutional to a tax that was constitutional. Even though it was never billed as a tax, it was never presented as a tax, it's not called a tax, uh, it was not argued for as a tax, even by the legal advocates of uh, who are appearing before the Supreme Court. Uh, nevertheless, John Roberts sort of reread it that way just to keep a law that was passed by Congress and signed by a president in place. So he he's very respectful of legislatures. He's very respectful of process. 
He's very concerned about never appearing to be an activist. And he's so concerned about those appearances that it, it winds up with him issuing really questionable decisions sometimes, I think. Yes, and I am not going to read this article online because it is very long, uh, but th- there is a new book out, John, that is um, on Chief Justice John Roberts, and the title of it is The Chief, The Life in Turbulent Times of Chief, Chief Justice John Roberts. But there was a review of it. I'll, I'll send it to you, and maybe we can talk about it next week on the show, because I think I think sometimes it's helpful for us to get a big picture, because sometimes we can get so caught up, John, in the day-to-day you know, who's up, who's down, you know, the 24-hour news cycle of what's being talked about on Twitter or what the latest crazy politician, whether they're in Virginia or somewhere else, said that we can ignore some of these bigger, pivotal questions on which really hinge, I think, the future of the republic. And I, I think it's important for us to sometimes look back and realize, okay, you know, sometimes it's not as simple as we saw a couple of uh, couple of months ago, John, you remember there was that very... Uh, controversial decision that the Supreme Court decided not to take up, I think, a challenge relating to um, Medicaid funding. And Justice Thomas, you know, excoriated the court for, well, if this was anyone else other than Planned Parenthood involved, you know, we we would take this on procedural grounds. And I think he had some really good points there. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's important for, for our listeners to kind of understand the broader picture of what is at stake. And I think there's a lot of really good Supreme Court co- podcasts out there. There's a lot of really smart attorneys out there that are talking about these issues. But I think sometimes it's important for us to explain how all of these things play together into the into the pro-life arena. And, and I, I do think that, John, we're in for some potentially monumental decisions, if not this year, certainly within the next several years. So we will continue talking about that, and we will talk about also couple of other issues related to both California and the nation on today's episode, the Valentine's Week episode of Life, Family, Liberty. John, uh, lots of stuff going on. We, we've talked a lot about abortion both today and over the past couple of weeks, but I did want to just address something that is a little bit... Um, a little bit broader, talking about my uh, my newspaper ad yesterday. Oh yeah, that's actually a good thing. Let's <laughs> let's talk about that. Talk about broad sheets. Ha 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 ha. ha. Uh, l- let's talk about that, and then if we have time, I want to finish talking about um, some of the things happening in Sacramento. But go ahead. Yeah. So, Right to Life yesterday, um, through the aid of a generous donor, Right to Life of Central California had a full page ad in the Fresno Bee on page A thirteen, uh, giving facts and info about late term abortion. And about why it's really bad and why people should care about it and giving two pieces of legislation that people should call our local valley representatives to complain about. So, uh, yeah, it was a nice big full page ad and it was pretty cool. So, yeah, we gave a lot of info about things like, hey, do you know there are 15,000 late term abortions per year? You know, the kind that they're trying to legalize in New York and Virginia and all that. 15,000 late-term abortions per year, which is more than the total number of people killed by firearms every year. Uh, yep. Even in, 26, in 2016, there were 11,004 people killed by firearms. Now, again, not to minimize firearm deaths. It's, that's a lot of people. We should probably have a broad and vibrant public discussion on the question of guns and gun rights and the Second Amendment and how that works. Um, but... It seems weird that we have this raging ongoing public discussion about gun rights and not enough of a public discussion about late-term abortion, even though 
the huge majority of Americans oppose late-term abortion. Uh, third trimester abo- abortions are opposed by 85% of Americans. Uh, 65% of Americans, I believe, uh, only favor having legalized abortion, or 65% of people who favor abortion only want it to be uh, legal in the first trimester, not in the second or third trimesters. So uh, anyway, that's why we at Right to Life were trying to highlight that this is a really bad problem, that there's not much being done about it, and that more should be done about it. So there you go. That's why we took out a full-page ad. Thanks to, thanks to a very generous owner who paid for it, because those things ain't cheap. No, and I'm I'm very, very grateful, because I think a lot of in a lot of cases, John, the, the general public does not understand how... Um, how extreme the abortion industry is. And, and this yeah. is something that I want to reference this because I think if people would like a, a different discussion but a deeper discussion on this issue, you and I did a kind of a town hall-style panel last week uh, hosted by our friends at Harris Construction. Yeah. And I should say by we, um, I showed up. John did all the work. Uh, <laughs> uh, right to Life Central California, uh, booked the venue, got the food, um, sent out the invites, did the Facebook live streaming, recorded it. I just sat there and l- looked like a dope for an hour and a half and tried to chime in every now and then. Yes. But it, it really was a good discussion. So we're yeah. ga- actually going to uh, publish that uh kind of press conference slash town hall to both the Right to Life radio podcast feed and to this podcast feed on Life, Family, Liberty, so you can listen to it. Um, So I I don't want to rehash too much of that ground, but I will say, John, the reason why I would like people to listen to it is a lot of people really do not understand how extreme the left is and the Democratic Party specifically is on abortion. Yeah, they they also, I think, don't understand just how extreme the Supreme Court decisions on abortion are. I think a lot of people think of Roe v. Wade as like, well, it just give it gave women the choice, gave them the, the ability to choose. But you know, I'm not crazy about third trimester abortion or second. But I think women should have the right to choose. You know, and that's what that's why I like Roe v. Wade. People don't understand that that's not what Roe v. Wade said. Roe v. Wade and its sister case Doe v. Bolton basically guarantees it basically prevents any state from banning any abortion at any time because you can only ban abortion according to Roe in the third trimester. You can only ban abortion according to its successor case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, after viability, but those bans on abortion have to come with a health exception. Right. And the health exception that you need to include in any, quote, ban on abortion in the third trimester or after viability is broad enough to drive a truck through. It's an exception so broad that it renders the rule meaningless. Basically, health can can mean familial health which means my family dynamic will be upset. Financial health, I can't afford this baby. Uh, It can mean emotional health, psychological health. So there's literally no pregnancy in the whole universe of possible theoretical pregnancies that does not seriously implicate a woman's health by that standard. And thus, any third trimester abortion is legally permissible. Any post-viability abortion is legally permissible. So... That, that, that's what people don't get, is that our existing law, the Supreme Court precedents that we are governed by, that purport to read into the text of the Constitution all these things that are magically hidden in there, even though the word abortion is never mentioned in the Constitution ever, um, those Supreme Court decisions are incredibly radical and put America in a place where we are out of step with not only what most Americans think, but with what most of the rest of the world. Most of the rest of the world bans abortion after 20 weeks. Many countries ban abortion after the first trimester. 
And yet here we are uh, having state legislators literally applauding a governor, literally cheering and clapping as he signs into law a law that legalizes third trimester abortions. It's completely, utterly sick. And, and fourth trimester abortions, frankly, by allowing doctors not to provide care to an unborn child who survives a third trimester abortion. Right. And, John, I, th- I think the important thing to point out here, um, and we probably will just finish talking about this for this segment. We'll, we'll have lots to talk about from California's capital next week. But I, I think something to point out, John, we mentioned earlier the, the polarization of the parties on this issue. Um, there's a lot of issues where there used to be much more broad, broad bipartisan mixing. But I, I think the abortion issue is maybe the single issue that has had the most extreme partisan sorting. Well, um, well, it hasn't, it hasn't, because at the level of elected officials and party platforms, that is true. But when you actually poll rank-and-file Democrats about abortion, they're usually way more moderate than their actual party. Right. And it's shocking when people realize they're a quarter of all Democrats self-identify as pro-life. Now, now and that, John, that's actually the, the point that I... Uh, well, I, sorry for no, 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 no. But you're, you're actually making it. It's actually perfect because I think that the, um, the the trick is that the Republican Party platform. If you compare the 2016 Republican Party platform with the platforms of the early 80s under the Reagan administration, it has not gotten significantly more pro-life. No, but the Democratic Party platform has gotten significantly more pro. Abortion and abortion extreme. I mean, as an example, there's this article I was reading, John, about the Hyde Amendment, you know, whether or not we directly fund abortions. Mm -hmm. With federal government dollars. Back in uh, 2011, this is a quote from an article in the the Washington Post. Uh, They said, even some of the staunchest supporters of abortion rights endorsed maintaining the Hyde Amendment as a means to passing health reform. Quote, my whole thing is I just want to see the status quo preserved, which is the Hyde idea, unquote, said Barbara Boxer. Yeah. Well in known. 2011. <laughs> Well-known right-wing nutter. Oh, wait, no. Barbara Boxer. Not exactly. But, but literally, John, just in the last eight years since the passage of Obamacare, the mainstream Democratic Party has gone from saying, yes, we support the Hyde Amendment, and it, it was getting broad bipartisan support, to Hillary Clinton the Democratic candidate for president, not just in a primary debate, but openly campaigned on eliminating the Hyde Amendment so that we could begin direct federal funding of abortion. And it's so bizarre because, honestly, abortion was like the biggest hang-up in passing the Affordable Care Act, and they had to moderate all kinds of things. If the Democrats had introduced a bill that was full-on single pay- national single-payer health care, but no funding for abortion whatsoever, um, that probably would have passed. Yep. I bet. Yep. I mean, it wouldn't shock me. Oh, yeah. No, I think there are plenty of conservatives in uh, purple states and and plenty of, at the time, in 20, uh, 2009 and 2010, with the huge majority that Nancy Pelosi had, you think Bart Stupak, John, would have even you know raised a finger against a no. bill? No, he would have. he would have voted for something like that with... Full-on enthusiasm. All of those pro-life Democrats who now no longer have jobs, uh, they all would have gone for that. But yep. the left is just so hardcore committed to funding abortion with our federal taxpayer dollars that that's not what they did. Yes. 
So, folks, as often, abortion is so much in the news, it, it again consumed the entirety of the show today. But rest assured, we will be back next week with more topics. Be sure to check this feed for that special episode. I'm Jonathan Keller. I'm John Gerard. We'll talk with you next week on another episode of Life, Family, Liberty. Liberty.